Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We need to radically shift how we view drugs and drug users. And that's the line, I think probably one of the most important lines from heroin, which is the story they say you were never told about the republic that never happened, of the person you never saw, of what we built and then demolished. It's the big one, the bad one, the one you thought you'd try. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about heroin. The radical staging of how we got here and how much we care is what Theatre Club say about it. It's an award-winning show, an explosion of the social history of heroin in Ireland over the last 60 years. It was first performed in 2010, but the play has been on hundreds of times since then all over Europe and it is crushingly as relevant as ever. So in this episode, you're going to hear Grace Diaz and Rachel Kyo. Rachel is the author of a book called Dying to Survive. She's one of the first people actually to talk about her own experience of heroin abuse and Grace and Rachel came together to make a brand new production. It's still very current, still very relevant And as they both say, we can't fucking believe this is still going on. It's not a play anymore as such. Well, it is a play, but it's also a campaign. And they say that for 60 years we've been going around in circles, letting people die. When we said we needed help, we were put on a waiting list. And there's still only 30 detox beds, which is not too far from the number there were when this play was first staged. So Grace and Rachel came in to talk to me about heroin. Grace, heroin is a social issue that you have been exploring and investigating for quite a long time. What is it that got you interested in it in the first place? Well, I grew up in the south inner city in between two fat complexes, Fatima Mansions and Dolphin House. And my whole life, heroin addiction was kind of part of the background of my growing up. I would have found uh, syringes in my garden when I was playing. Um, people knocked at my door asking for spoons regularly and I remember being a kid and being like what do they want the spoons for and witnessing arguments with my parents of like one parent deciding we should give them the spoons and the other parents saying no don't give them the spoons and um, they were using them to inject in the nearby laneways around the house um, so it was always something in my background and then addiction and recovery is also a big thing in my family so I would have had an awareness that I would have our, our, our values as a family would be that addiction is a health issue not, and not a criminal justice issue. And so 
growing up, that was what I believed. But then when I went into the the world and started to work, I was working in a phone shop in North Earl Street. And this was kind of the inspiration for the play. And there was a group of heroin users that used to come in and, and buy SIM cards. And as a person on commission, I thought this was great. So <laughs> I used to kind of encourage this and, and, and run down the street after them saying, do you need any more SIM cards? Because when they bought the SIM cards, I got to go to London for the weekend to see so my sister. So you were sister. like mercenary, but Yeah, so I was like 19 at the yeah. time. And, and there was one day when a guy, he wanted a SIM swap. So he wanted his number on another chip. It's like... So it feels like years ago that sort of stuff used to happen. Yeah. But he obviously needed that number for a drug dealer or whatever. Mm. And he got really upset with me because I wasn't able to give it to him because of that protection. And I knew the guy really well. And he ended up spitting at me. And like my, it was like something out of a horror film. Like my whole face was full oh. of blood and spit. And yeah. And the whole kind of atmosphere there was a little bit like a war zone. You know, like people would come in and they'd have like bits of their flesh hanging off and they'd be handing you money for um, SIM cards and there'd be people with kids and children screaming and it's just like constant. It was that place outside the shop was where all the drug users kind of congregated. And so the staff would be very much like, you know, at war with them to a degree. But I was never like that because I, I understood that they could buy SIM cards and that we would, you know, it was like, this is I'm here to sell SIM cards but also because I would have a more empathetic approach maybe because I was grown up with that kind mm. of stuff but I didn't really I was quite innocent as well Roisin because I didn't understand that other people don't view it that way and so this day mm. when the guy spat at me I just went downstairs I was shocked I cleaned myself up and I came back up onto the floor fully expecting to get into trouble for not being on the sales floor for 20 minutes I thought I was going to be killed like but actually, when I got upstairs, they had pulled the shutters down and they closed the shop. Like closing the shop was a huge thing in 2008. It was like, what? You're closing the shop? Um, and they were really worried about me. And everyone thought that I was going to have AIDS. They thought I was going to get uh, HIV or whatever from the blood. And they didn't understand <clears throat> that you don't, you can't contract it that way or whatever. And they were so angry and they were saying really horrific things. Like just, you know, I mean, I don't like to repeat it, but they were saying all these people should be rounded up and shot. They should be put on an island, you know. And I don't I don't judge them for saying that either because they don't have the awareness, you know. But I was really terrified by the reaction that was to this man and how he'd behaved because I just saw it like he was stressed. He was under pressure. You know, other, you know, more sort of middle-class people had treated me much worse, you know, in, in my retail life. Like, you know, I remember putting shoes onto people in Brown Thomas with, like, big, horrible, like, sores on their feet and all and making me do their, you know, <coughs> which was much worse, you know. But, like, this was, like, a whole um, whole new ball game for me. So from that point on, I kind of thought, OK, this is about value, you know. It's about how we value certain sections of people and why is it OK to say that a whole group of people should be sterilised, you know. And for, is that where you started to think that you wanted to yeah. explore it and write about it and produce yeah. theatre around it? Yeah, and I was interested in making theatre at the time, so I went to the Royals of Community Drug Team. They always slagged me now saying, you presented yourself to the methadone clinic. <laughs> and I went in and I was like, I really want to make something. I've had this experience. And they were kind of like, OK, well, you're basically Pollyanna. And, <laughs> you know, we're very busy here. <laughs> but they kind of welcomed me into the commu- to the team there, the staff. Yeah. And I, I did about two years working in the clinic and talking to mm. drug users about their experiences. And it was through that that I met Rachel. Okay, so Rachel, I was going to say, where do you come come into this? Did you meet yeah. Grace at that at that time? Yeah, I think it was about two thousand and eight, wasn't yeah. it? When we met, um, Grace approached me. You've written a lot about your story, and you have a book about your experience. But just briefly tell yeah. us what your own background was up to then. Um, well, I suppose I kind of um, I made myself known to the public um, in two thousand and six. 
Um, well, it was more my mother. It was more of a kind of a desperate, you know, bid to try and kind of help me to get clean, you know. Um, and she went to uh, a, a journalist and she told him, like, basically that I was trying to get into treatment and anywhere I went, like, I was met with red tape. You um, were a heroin, u- heroin user? Yeah, I'm in recovery from heroin addiction, but I was, you know, I'd start using when I was really young. Um, I was only, I think I was 11 when I started using drugs. Um, by the time I was 13, I was, like, smoking heroin. By the time I was 15, I was injecting heroin. So I was really young, like, you know, um, and I was gone, like, Roisin. I was gone from a very young age, like, you know. Um, and uh, at this, like, in 2006, my family were just at their wits' end and um, I was trying to get into loads of different places and anywhere I went, like, there was, you know, they were saying to me, no, you need to be from a certain area or you need to actually, um, you know, get down to 40 mils of methadone. Like, there was just red tape, bureaucracy everywhere, you know. And um, my arms were, they were going to amputate both my arms, like, um, at the time, because I had, like, severe black necrosis um, in my arms. But I was literally, I was using drugs against my will, Roisin, do you know? And, and um, it was just horrendous, like, and I kept overdosing, like, nearly on a daily basis, like, and I was so thin, just really sick, like. And my family, my mother um, went to a newspaper and she wanted to highlight the story. Now, I, at the time, like, I just didn't think anything would come of it. Um, but it kind of really took on a life of its own. And um, I suppose there was nothing for me at the time. There was nothing altruistic about it. I just wanted to get into treatment, like, yeah. you know. You wanted to get well. Yeah. Do you know, that's all I wanted. And um, But anyway... Uh, a lot of people kind of related to it. Um, I think it was the first time in a long time that anyone had been that public, like about their own personal experience with drugs, you know. Ever like that, yeah. a woman as well. Do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. And the response was absolutely phenomenal. Like, you know, people were just so supportive. Um, I ended up at the time, I had gathered a lot of, um, I'd been in prison from a very young age. Um, and I suppose this is why I really wanted to kind of, myself and Grace are doing a reproduction of heroin. Um, it's been on for 10 years, but we wanted to reproduce it again because um, I feel really strongly about decriminalisation mm. and the campaign has that kind of slant on at this time. Um, it's not just a play, it's a campaign. Mm. And the reason why I feel so strong about decriminalisation is because I have personal ex- experience of what being put into prison can can do to you, you know. Mm. And I know, I understand people would say, like, you know, you do the time, you do the crime and stuff like that. And um, I understand that. Like, I, I don't think that you could, she could just go out and run amok and get away with it, like, you know. But for me, I was only 15 and um, I, I'm talking, like, petty crime. And uh, I was put into the old women's Mount Joy prison. Really? Yeah. Really? yeah. A me. younger offender's place to go. You have to go into the women's prison. I, well, I, I shouldn't have been put in there. It was overcrowded even when you were put in there. Yeah. You didn't even have a bed. No, I was like, I was put in and everyone in there was much older than me. They were like grandmothers and everything, do you know? And um, I actually met a woman there recently um, and she'd be easily in her 60s and uh, she's completely drug free now. And I haven't seen her since I, you know, since I was 15. And she approached me and she said to me, I want to apologise to you. She said, because I was locked up with you in Mount Joy, she said, and I'm, I'm completely sober and drug free now. But she, she gave me a hit of heroin into the neck when I was 15. You know, and now I was strung out at the time, and I the drug had just completely. I was, my hands were tied behind me back, like, and I was really sick, like, and that's the thing when you go in there, 
drugs are readily available. You can get them nearly as quick in pres- prison as you can outside. Do you know? Um, so it's, it's not the solution, is what you're saying. It's not. Because it must be another way. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's eight years since you <coughs> collaborated with Grace the first yeah. time on, on the play. Mm. And I just want interested to see how, I mean, first of all, why eight years later it's still really mm. important, because obviously yeah. it is, and how little has changed maybe. Yeah. And then also... Just tell me a bit more about this campaign and how that aspect is going to work into the actual theatre production. I mean, everything yeah. you do, Grace, as we know, we've had you in before. Former campaign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it, you're quite, I mean, the theatre club's quite unique, I think, in that, in yeah. that you don't just do performances. There's always some kind of message and there's always some kind of catalyst for change as mm. well. Um, and you did that in with Repeal the Eighth uh, as well and you did it with the, the game uh, about yes. prostitution. So so tell us why this campaign and, and what's yeah. changed or hasn't changed. Well, when we first, like myself and Rachel met back in 2008, and then the play was first performed in 2010 and at that point it was like it takes a village to make a story about heroin so the actual play itself goes through the whole social history of the drug in Ireland from the 60s right up to the present day and the reason we did that was to kind of show people that no one wakes up in the morning and decides to become a drug addict that there's other factors at play so there's the social policy around things the lack of investment in communities the housing policies they all have a part to play in why someone will end up deciding to take drugs and one of the biggest things that I found was talking to older drug users who would have been in places like Dangan and Letterfrack that when they came back to Rialto and Dolphins Barn in the 70s, they were in a lot of pain from being severely sexually and physically abused by Catholic priests in those institutions. Mm. And there was a painkiller available on the streets for them then. And that's how they got kind of hooked, was like they needed this to, to feel well. And all Rachel's talking about there, like that, that need to take drugs, it's about needing to feel well on a you know, on an, on an emotional level because of the pain you've experienced in your life. But then with heroin as well, it's, a, it's physically so addictive that it's actually unsafe to detox. You can't just stop taking it. Your heart might stop. There's loads of different things that you need medical supervised care. So in 2010, we discovered um, that there's only 30 detox beds available in this country back then for a drug using population in the tens of thousands. Currently, we have over nearly 20,000 people on methadone prescription and 22% of those have been on it for over 20 years. So we haven't actually been doing anything to stop the problem. How many beds do we have now? Still 30. We and have so about 50, I think, isn't it? But there's like 30, um, I think just 50 there, but 20 of them are just left lying vacant. Yeah, okay, so there's 30 available. Like, and in, within yeah. those 30, there's there's other stipulations like the red tape Rachel was talking about. Two are for young people. Right. Um, so you have to be under 18. Two... Between two and four, I think, are in the prison service. So you have to be in the prison service to access them. So mm. really, the amount that are available are dwindling all the time. Uh, and drugs workers <clears throat> have to like really fight really hard to get someone into treatment. And also, the, the addict has to fight really hard because at the moment when you decide, right, I'm finished with this, I don't want it, there's a small window there. And that opportunity is being missed time and time again because the state are refusing to invest. But they are happy to invest. And this is kind of why it's, why it's relevant now. They are happy to invest in the criminal justice model, which doesn't help. So there's lots of evidence that proves that all treatment works. Like if you look up the Rosie report from 2010, it says all treatment has an impact, all forms, whether it be Reiki, whether it be detox, it all works. But the Redmond report proved that in 2011, the, the sectors that were most affected by austerity were the drugs youth. So the one, the things that are working. There's multiple reports that prison does not work to treat addiction. Yet we are still yeah. investing. 
invest in money in that. So this is, I mean, you touched on it there earlier, Rachel, about decriminalisation, which, Mm. as you said, like, does scare a lot of people and and Mm. makes people very worried and concerned, and maybe rightly so to some degree. But is your objective then with the play and with the campaign to try and get sort of a a shift in the way people look at this issue and to make people look at it differently and just by talking about it in a very factual way? Very real way. To ask the question, is this a criminal justice issue or is it a health issue? Which is what you as a kid were kind of aware of, which yeah, is funny. I mean, yeah. all those years ago in Rialto. Yeah, that would have been, I mean, my parents would have been really involved in recovery kind of circles and stuff. And that kind of thinking was coming in from the States. But we haven't really caught up with that in Ireland yet. And is it because of the stigma? Um, you know, like I, I Lynn Rowan's book, which is out soon, and she's, mm. she's got some very good stuff in it about vigilantism at mm. the time. And mm. I mean, even within those areas where the people were who were addicts, there was um, real judgment and real mm. stigma around drug taking. And I'm sure, Rachel, you had your fair yeah. share of that. Yeah. But I think and it does, is it is it yeah. shifting that as well? As I well think as in the, communities, people are aware now and from the concerned parents movements, because originally, yeah, mm. there would have been stigma around drug users, definitely. But then I think over the course of that movement, parents learned that actually it's not the drug users they need to be targeting. It's they're sick and they need to invest in treatment as opposed to punishing people. And they kind of learned that themselves and they actually fought the government then to establish the community drug teams we have now. So every community that in, in a working class you know area has a community drug team. You, you don't see Black Rock community drug team, but there's a community drug team everywhere else. A Fox Rock. A Fox Rock community drug yeah. team. Um, but they fought to establish the community drug teams that we have now to provide treatment and the only treatment that they were offered was methadone. But in communities, I think people are aware it's a health issue. But I think in general, um, you know, the general public, it's not seen that way. And I think that's a lack of awareness. So yeah. tell me about the yeah. play itself. Um, everything you do, as I said, is, is kind of different. So mm. what, what what way does it pan out? What is the story you're telling? And, and I know in other productions you've done, there's a certain amount of audience participation or yeah. you're, you're really um, asking something different of the audience. Yeah. Well, in this, I think we're quite mindful of the audience that they might be affected by what they're seeing and stuff. So it's not like you won't be pulled up to say anything or do anything. It's like... Okay, so nobody needs to be worried about nobody that. Nobody needs to be worried about that. <laughs> Um, it's trauma-aware piece, just to be really clear about it. Like, we're aware that we're, what we're doing with the play is we're going through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Like, we're going through all the things that happened in Ireland. So all of our traumas, the you know, the war in the north, all of that stuff is in there. You know, Veronica Guerin's death, all of that stuff has been revisited. So we're trauma-aware in how we present it to the audience, like, so they don't have to do anything or they're not, you know... Um, but it will, it's a journey, it's a trip. Like you go through everything from the 60s up until now. And then Rachel's story is covered from the 80s onwards. Yeah, um, so I was born then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's and very real. Yeah, it's very, and it's very real. Yeah, yeah, like so it's like the actors are reenacting this and showing you what mm. happened. But they're not pretending that it's happening now and there's no kind of fourth wall. It's all, right. they're speaking directly to the audience. Okay. They're not making the audience respond to yeah. them. And then crucially afterwards in this version, because it is a campaign, yeah. I mean, every time we've done the play over the last eight years, we have had a post-show discussion because we felt it was important for the audience to get to go, I never knew there was only 30 detox beds. Like, what can we do about this? Or mm. or just like, I'm really upset about that. It was, it's kind of a care piece. Mm. Um, but now it's like we want to have a conversation about the topics that are raised and actually put pressure on governments to make to, to give us the option to make changes. And as you know, Roisin, like we've made huge changes in Ireland mm. in the past number of years. Like we have the capacity within us. Absolutely. The, the people power is there, but the political will isn't there. You know. Yeah. Do you have any uh, political <coughs> allies? There, there are some people working 
on in a similar mm. vein, aren't there? I mean, Adon Rudin is yeah. doing a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. he's brilliant. Yeah, he's really good. Like and Lynn Rowan as mm. well. Yeah. She's really supportive. And yeah, people like Gary Gannon as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Anna yeah. Buckley as well. And so there are people there pushing the yeah. same kind well, of. Lynn thing. put a put a bill on the Shannon floor like last year, wasn't it? Last year when he did the Joe Casting piece. Yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there has been like she's put a lot of work into the legislation, like you know she's invested a lot of time and money into it. So the legislation is there. So it's just about political will and, and votes essentially. Like this is something that we don't need to do a referendum on. You know it could be done tomorrow. Like so, so the mm. the campaign part or the mm. part afterwards. How does that manifest in in the production, or what way does that work? So. What we're trying to do with the production is to make people aware of the history of why we're at where we are now and then to have a conversation about what kind of solution do you want to present to this problem as a, as a nation, like, you know. So what we would be advocating would be to take drugs out of the uh, criminal justice and into the health, but with, you know, obviously not in a kind of a naive Pollyanna kind of way, like, mm. do you know what I mean? To look at the evidence in mm. Portugal and see how that's been working and how it's... And it has kind of worked massively. in Portugal. It has, they've actually cut so the there's problem a precedent, in half. there's an example mm. to look at and see. Yeah, absolutely. Like they've cut it in half. They've literally cut the addiction problem in half in Portugal and they've decreased um, HIV rates and mortality rates as well. And they very reluctantly uh, do, done that, you know. Um, they were terrified because they thought that um, Portugal like, would become like a, a haven for drug users, you know. But um, it's been really successful. And like they, what they do is, is if, if they catch, you know, it's not um, like the dis- distribution and sell, sale of drugs is illegal. Mm-hmm. But if someone is caught with a certain amount, they kind of have it, you know, they, like a certain amount is their personal use like. And then they're, if they're caught, they're offered to go to um, a, a dissuasion court so it's basically like a table like this and um, they're told like well these are, are your options like if you want to go to treatment it's there for you mm. and they have like psychologists as well and different experts to actually go out on the street so it's just I mean it's a lot of resources mm. isn't it but yeah. as you say Grace about, in terms of how much it costs yeah. to keep someone in prison for a year <clears throat> it's 22 I mean, grand a year yeah, like, if you, if you took prison. that and used it in something like that, it kind of is a no brainer no brainer and, and yes mm. it's such a big shift for people to a leap for people to make because yeah. of the way we've thought about it for so long I think Fear, we've like, thought about it like in Ireland like if you're taking drugs you're doing something wrong you're you're you know the bold boys the bold girls like you need to be punished like don't hang around with them kind of thing but actually we know from evidence that if someone is taking drugs it's because they're in a lot of pain and often the pain is state inflicted do you know like so it's like the pain has come from not having housing mm from, you know, uh, being abused in your in your school or in wherever, if you're in an industrial school, the pain is something that we as a state are responsible for. So it's like we, say say those men, they, like a lot of older men who I would have worked with in Rialto who were in Dangan and Letterfrack in the 70s, it's like we sent you there, we we basically ruined your life, then you tried to cope with it by taking drugs and we punished you for that then. Mm. So it's just people being constantly punished and obviously we all have personal responsibility and all that kind of stuff. But like the evidence is overwhelming that heroin is such a powerful painkiller that after a certain point, there is no choice. Yeah. It's a physical dependency that you need to do it to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And what's unfortunate then is that while we are like the social sickness thing that it's like, you know, Dr. John Bradshaw talked about social sickness. So it's like it's like the, we're all addicted. Yeah, there's addicts. But then society is also sick because mm. it's denying the problem all the time. And it's pretending it's not happening. Whereas, you know, for yourself, Roshan, even walking from this interview to get a train, you could feel like, oh, someone's going to rob my bag or something's going to happen. And that comes from, or even walking late at night, you know, it's a lot of crack on the streets now. And the play does, does talk about all different types of drugs now. And that's not fair on you. That's no society that you should have to live in where you're worried about being attacked because people want, need something to stay alive. Like, it's kind of, 
when you when you really drill down into it, it's like some kind of zombie horror movie. Yeah. Like you yeah. know, it's, it's not control. Like you yeah. know, it's just like just put them all in prison and give them methadone and sedate them and mm. control them. Like I mean, you know? if you're going to finish up, but you got treatment obviously, and you've yeah. been clean for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I mean, got clean. You were lucky enough to yeah. get the treatment that you needed, but as we know, there's so many people mm. who, who aren't mm. getting that. And yeah, 30 exactly. but even I, I have to say, like even when Rachel and her par- and her family went on the like international media, you yeah. still had to wait six weeks. Longer, longer. I was months waiting, like, but um, that's the way it is for everybody. Do you yeah, know? They um, didn't, they didn't put her to the top of the queue or anything. Do you know what I mean? And that like, story no. is all in the play. Yeah. So yeah. listen, you you're also inviting politicians, and I think you're doing something yeah. a bit you're a bit shaming of the politicians. But if they don't turn well, up when they're invited, shame or responsibility, shame or stroke responsibility. <laughs> don't turn up. There's going to be an empty seat in yeah. the, in the auditorium with their name on it, and yeah. we'll all know who didn't turn up. Which yeah, I think it's kind of <laughs> we're cool doing that. a show at eleven o'clock in the day for politicians and youth groups, which will be a really interesting mix. Yeah, and really good opportunity for those two quote cohorts to talk, to talk yeah. to each other. And those other. are the people they're keeping alive by changing this legislation. Well listen well done you're starring in Hozier's video as well you have a lot going on you were in yeah. the Stand for Truth gig yeah. as well and uh, you did a beautiful beautiful piece on that which I thought was the line that, st- that stands out for me having heard it is that part of us is uh Sick. Part, there's a part well. of us that's very well, and there's a part, part of us that needs to recover. That's in heroin. That's in heroin. That's in the as new well. production, yeah. Brilliant. Well, yeah. I think that's great, and I'm sure you're going to get loads of people coming to see it, and I think this conversation really is so important. Will so, you come yeah. and see it? Of course I will. If you don't, so. we'll put your name on the show. Grace and Rachel. Thanks, Thanks very, very, much. Much. very much. And that's it for today. I just think it's such an important conversation, and I just think as well that Grace and Rachel are. Incredible people to be um, putting themselves into this campaign. It's kind of a harrowing subject, but it is really important. So thanks very much to Grace Diaz and to Rachel Kyo for speaking to me about heroin today. And if you want to see the play, I call it a play, but I think as you can hear, it's it's much more than that. And it is really a campaign. So if you want to be involved in that play or involved in that campaign, it's at the O'Reilly Theatre, Great Denmark Street in Dublin on the 25th to the 27th of September. It's also on on the 29th of September in the Glen Centre, Manor Hamilton, New Line, which is in County Leitrim. And also keep an eye on theatreclub.ie to find out where else it's being performed. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. We do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, head along to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. In the next episode, we're going to be bringing you the winner of that Brown Thomas Style Summit denim event competition which is happening on September 27th so stay tuned for that episode the podcast is produced by myself Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound until next time thanks for listening catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.